on FM 96.3 and AM 620. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. We are back, taking you through the morning all the way to 9 o'clock. And uh, joining us in studio now is the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Vermont, Dave Zuckerman. Good morning, Dave. And nice little prank you pulled on me, too, by the way. Well, you know, I thought I'd have a little fun. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not April 1st, but sometimes you got to do these things on a different day, so people aren't expecting it. No, right? and I actually thought of it this morning because sometimes you text me the night before and say, hey, I'm on tomorrow, right? And That's right. so I, and I, I hit me this morning that you didn't, so I said, I'm going to text him just to make sure. So I texted and said, hey, Dave, see you at 7 o'clock. And Dave texted me back and says, oh, my God, I, I, I totally forgot. And I'm scrambling now, and I'm probably going to be a few minutes late. I said, And I said, don't worry about it, Dave. Take your time. When you get here, you get here. Drive safely. I was very concerned. I didn't yep. want to. Yep. And then Dave says, oh, just kidding. <laughs> I'll be there on time. I was like, oh, okay, you got me. And I don't think I said, oh, gosh, in the text, but no, I'm not quite sure you can say what I typed. No, that's one of the, some fun with that. That yeah. is one of the forbidden words. That's yeah. right. That's right. But it's funny because I was thinking, Shoot. Um, boy, it's 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 <laughs> couple of letters. I hope I hope you bring something from the farm, and you did. Yeah. The melons were great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. We got a phone call already for you. Wow, we're ready to go. Right uh, out of the gate. I better I wake up. I want to talk sweet corn and melons. Well, and we'll get we there. We'll get there. We'll okay. get back to that. I do want to talk farming a little with the cool. floods. But. Oh, yeah. All right, let's uh, go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, Lieutenant Governor. Good morning. I'd like, just like to say uh, you're one of the most phony, disingenuous people okay. I've ever heard. Okay, okay, bye-bye. I could be disingenuous. You brought really good sweet yeah, corn. Come visit the farm anytime. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I I I will talk with anyone. There's a strong two uh, A guy uh, who, when uh, Phil Scott was working on the bill and signing bills around uh, some of the parameters on gun safety, uh, I always stepped out in the hall, chatted with him for quite a bit, and he recently chimed in on Facebook. I reached back out to him. Look, we all have different views. I I have sometimes messaged folks. Look, I'm happy to talk to you. Let's try to be respectful about it, but. You know, we're never going to get anywhere if we can't talk to each other. No, right. that's exactly the point. That's the whole and you point. can you can call in here and ask a passionate question. Sure, you can have you know you, but just don't start out calling names. I mean, that, that's where we draw the line. You you can ask a question, a hard question, passionate question to anybody, but do it in the right way. Yeah, and uh, you know, if someone wants to get to my farm when I get up in the morning and start working and tag with me for a day and see what I do. Some days are more intense. Other days are a little less so. But uh, oh, I don't know, then, Dave. Just then they'll know. Then they'll know how phony I am. Encouraging yeah. anybody to just show right. up at your farm, Dave. I don't know. No, well, I, I would like to know in advance. Yeah, but, of course. Uh, you know. No, but it's see to see what goes. Because of course, in, if I know in advance, work. I yeah. can set up all the fake stuff. <laughs> there you go. If I don't know in advance, then I, I can't I can't create the fake fields of food overnight. I got right. You know, you I need to get a stage. You need a couple days. Bring yeah. in bring in yeah. uh, bring in a bunch of plastic. I mean, I've hoodwinked you with the pig story forever. I mean, you've told that story over. I that is. Was all it's bogus. A, Never happened. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a classic Vermont story. People said that to me. They I say, couldn't take where the questions, else but Vermont? Man. Do you have Lieutenant Governor on the on the line? And he says, "I got to let you guys go for a few minutes. The pigs just got out. What was, is that? What the pigs escaped? Yeah, well, some piglets got out. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. Whatever. I, I'm just having some fun. We don't have to tell the story again. I think your listeners are probably tired of that one. <laughs> well, but. some heard it, some did. But, but listen, you brought some goods in, some goodies in here. But before we get to that, I want to ask you. Um, obviously, a lot of farmers have been devastated by the floods. Um, did you get any impact at all from the floods? So I got a picture I got on my phone. I did not get flooded. I used to farm in the Intervale. Uh, we were flooded twice while I was there in those nine or ten years. Um, typically, the floods were uh, April or into May, so you might have gotten some field work started or maybe your first seeds in in late April or transplants in early May, and those would get wiped out or strawberries, you know, late May, they're flowering, getting ready. Um, one of the big differences with these floods, both Irene and the flood of 23, for lack of a better name, as you were talking about earlier, uh, is the timing of the floods. Yeah. Floods were very typical spring floods. You've got snow melt and a big rain, you get a flood. Yep. Uh, in the fall, sometimes you get a first snow and then you get a big rain. You get a flood in November or early December. Um, excuse me, the big difference now is, uh, is the timing. But I was going to show you all a picture of the melon field, so I brought in some melons for you. They're good. Uh, we are swimming in melons. Well, maybe that's not a good term. Uh, we have a lot of melons right now, but normally 
I have melons for about eight weeks. I'm going to have them for about two because the plants are just hammered by rain day after day after day spreads diseases. Okay. And so we have a lot of crop loss from just the nonstop wetness. Right. Um, and this is a picture of a watermelon that I won't harvest uh, because it's got speckled disease all over it. Right. No one's going to buy that melon. No. Some of the flesh is decent. Right. Um, if not good. But uh, it's it's been across the board a tough season. I mean, we had the fruit tree growers get frozen in mm-hmm. mid-May with that very deep cold. That was much deeper cold than we've had in mid-May and in my memory, it yeah. was a record, so yeah. past my memory. And um, so a lot of farmers I've talked to that aren't flooded are also facing damage. And I just actually last week at market, uh, one of uh, Congresswoman uh, Balance staffers uh, who I've known from Statehouse work for years came by and she mentioned that, in fact, those of us that weren't flooded but have suffered from the nonstop, you know, six weeks of rain uh, should register with FSA because they're including that all that rain uh, as part of the tally on some of the agricultural impact from the rains. Because as you know, if it hadn't rained and rained and rained and rained and the ground was not so saturated, some of the scale of this flood would also not have been as uh, terrible as it was. I'm glad to hear that because when I drive around Addison County, you know, you look at the, at the, um, the, the cornfields even, Mm -hmm. and, and they, you can tell because they're too wet, the color's not right. But you look down the rows, and there's so much standing water yeah, in well, all in the clay fields. fields. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. especially in yeah. Addison County, it's yeah. not going anywhere. Yeah. And so it's it's good to hear that if if a farmer's listening and they're like, yeah, well, I, I you Call know I, I wasn't I wasn't in Washington County, but I you know in Addison or other places uh, because it is definitely having an impact. If it didn't wipe everything out. I don't even know how they're going to get on some of these fields. Oh, yeah, they can't get their equipment in. And at the press conference the other day, uh, Secretary Tebbets was talking about at the fields that were flooded, which we're talking about, you know, over 10,000 acres of fields are flooded, and they had been hoping some of the corn was going to recover and hay as well. But some of those fields, you also don't want to take your equipment in, especially corn where you can't see. If there's a tree in there and you run into that with your combine, <laughs> you're done. you've caused yourself you know, tens, if not close, maybe even $100,000 damage to your equipment. The, the big combines are a quarter of a million dollars yeah, now. Those things are crazy. Probably even more. They were a quarter of a million a couple of years ago, and everything's jumped. Yeah. Have you had an opportunity, Dave, to as lieutenant governor to uh, travel around the state and see a lot of the damage? Well, I have an opportunity, take an opportunity. It's an interesting set of, uh, how do you define it? But uh, I've been to Hardwick and Johnson. I was just down in uh, Ludlow and that area because I was headed down to Bellows Falls before going to the Calvin Coolidge event last night, actually. Uh, You were talking about that earlier. Um, So I've seen some damage in fields. I've seen some damage uh, to infrastructure. Uh, I was not uh, on those sort of high-profile trips uh, that were in the news a lot. Uh, but it's 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 terrible. I've got a friend in Montpelier who um, lives on State Street as it heads out of town. It's it's Route Two as it comes into town under the bridge there uh, on the west side of town. And there's a whole row of houses there. I mean, it was wet well up to your waist. You it's know? just it's I can't get over uh, Montpelier. And they've ripped it down to the floor, and um, all the flooring is out. And uh, you know they're not sure what they're going to do. Yeah, let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. You're on the air. Hello? Caller? You there? No? Okay. Awesome. Well, you know, um, yeah, I've spent some time in Montpelier, uh, customers uh, down there, particularly Charlie O's. Um, right. And been there since 1861. Uh, but this time, it's different. They have to, the the, the whole building is 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 inquestionable. Uh, yeah, there's condition. a lot. When you get to the state buildings, all the private yeah. businesses, the houses, yeah, you got another call. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, first, I would just like to say thank you, Zuckerman, for coming on the radio. I know it's not easy to get a lot of uh, crap, but I like that you're wanting to at least talk. My question to you is, I'm trying to buy a house in the northwest part of the state, but I can only afford 250 and there's just nothing. Yeah. And I'm debating on whether or not I'm leaving the state yeah. to find somewhere more affordable. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, right, no, that's Dave, a really that's solid a question. Um, big issue. It's a huge issue, and uh, I have a few thoughts about it, and I'm. we'll see how it goes with your listeners, as that call, caller mentioned. Um, you know, there's a couple things I've thought about, uh, and I'm going to tie this to the, to the flood as well. Uh, you know, we have higher homeless rates than we did uh, in the past, and that was before the flood. Now we've got additional 
few thousand people with uh, homes that you can't live in right now. Vermont is actually the second or first highest second home owned state in the country. There's between 56 and 58,000 second homes. We're not mm-hmm. talking about rental properties. They might do some Airbnb with it, but I'm, a not, lot talk- of them are empty. I'm not talking long-term rental. A lot. These are, you know, vacation homes, second homes. Some of them are camps, you know, old Vermonters camps and so forth. Um, a third of those properties pay lower property rate, property taxes than homestead properties in Vermont. Second homes? Yep, because we have two property. T- I'm going to get to your question, sir. I do. I do. I'll, I'll come around. I promise. Uh, in Vermont, we have two tax classifications: homestead mm-hmm. and everything else, commercial, industrial, uh, rental. All those that are not primary homestead are in one box. That includes all these second homes, and our homestead rates go up based on whether we vote for our school budgets and so forth, and, and that's where your tax rates change, and your municipal taxes is, a, I'm, I'm talking as a separate measure, I'm talking about the school taxes. Uh, but the industrial commercial only goes up based on legislative action to change the number. And typically it's changed in parallel with some of the overall statewide average, but if it's all statewide average, some towns' home rates haven't gone up as much, others have spent more on their schools, and so in a third of the towns, the homestead rate is now higher than the commercial, than the commercial rate, rate. Uh, which is, uh, you know, that's how it all works. Uh, I believe we should actually create a third tier, and that third tier should be those second homes. Because the reason we don't want to raise commercial and industrial too high, of course, is we want to be able to have businesses be able to survive here as well and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, I would actually create a third tier. I would create a progressive property tax on that. So if it's the first couple hundred thousand, have a, a very small right. additional so rate. So if it is an old so camp. So those whole, old yeah. camps, we're not going to, you know, sixth generation camp, three seasons, you know, it's not yeah. uh, one of those swank homes. Right. Um, and then a little higher rate on the next, you know, three quarters of a million and a higher rate over a million or whatever. I don't know what the numbers are yet. I got to do the, the, the research. The reason that's related to this call is if we had an average of a thousand dollars on those, that would actually be $56 million a year. $56 million 56, a year. houses times $1,000. Yeah. What if that money were then put into things like housing and building more housing or subsidizing more affordable housing or developing and moving some of these manufactured home lots that are in these floodplains into safer territories? You know, if you had that kind of money every year going into housing to make uh, help subsidize the price of housing. Right. Or um, even if it was infrastructure or anything. It could be, so yeah, you, you build a water and sewer public, system. Private so that exactly. combinations. There's, there's a lot of those uh, different ways to bring that price down and increase the volume. Uh, I know a lot of folks are going to jump to the permitting conversation. We've had that conversation. I could We could have it again. Um, but, uh, but for this caller, you know, we will not have a workforce of the working class people that I saw on the roads driving to work today, the folks mm-hmm. that are in at seven o'clock, you know, uh, to work, to get out there and do, uh, whether it's the trades, uh, whether it's the cleaning of the buildings, uh, the janitors overnight, uh, whether it's actually social workers, uh, also don't even make a ton of money. You were talking about mental health earlier on the radio. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these folks make an 18, 20, 22 bucks an hour. You can't afford a house. There's well, and no, or you're it. you're part of the the big migration in the morning. You came up from from an area where a lot of people are forced to live because they can't afford anything in in what used to just be the Burlington area is right. now grown to the like he said northwestern Vermont. Oh yeah, I mean Hinesburg's pretty mm. expensive now. I was on the road with folks probably coming more from Starksboro and Bristol coming yeah, all the way in. Right. Port. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Nope. Hello. There you are. Hello. You're on the air. Hey, sorry, I'm in a bad service. That's all you got out. Yeah, I'm sorry, you're in a bad service. We also are sorry, we are very sorry. About you, but, but, but thanks for letting us know. We feel your pain. Yes, we do. <laughs> so the idea, Dave, here is you you, you want to get after people, uh, or at least increase taxes. And they say get after people, but increase taxes <laughs> on um, people who a lot of people who may come from out of state own a second home here, and it's they may be wealthy. Uh, well, I think if you own a, a million-dollar home, I would put you in the wealthy category. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. I, you know, there is a difference. I appreciate the fact that you see the difference because, um, you know, there are, like, camps, generational camps that, that don't have a ton of value. Uh, and and so it, it is on watch. Co- yeah. And a couple hundred dollars, maybe someone could take it. But if it was 1000 or 1500 more a year, they'd be like, right. I can't keep that but in But what's happening anymore. is, you know, uh, and it, it's this is what's funny is this conversation about mental health and, and the flooding. 
Um, I, I just want to tell you what a, a, an incredibly wealthy woman said to me in Middlebury the other day that is going to re- it, it resonated with me, and I, I was I kind of pushed back on my heels. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. Good morning, David. Good morning. So um, you, you just described sort of a long-term strategy, which I think is great. But what I don't understand is if everybody that called this program and said they were leaving the state because we tax pensions, because it's too expensive, we wouldn't have a housing problem. <laughs> but I think that people aren't leaving. So can you speak to, I mean, are people leaving Vermont or are they not? Because it seems to me they're not. Well, I, I, some people are leaving and some people are coming, right? So there's no doubt some folks who talk about leaving leave. Uh, you know, folks are starting to see that really in a lot of parts of the country, housing prices have gone up. So it's not quite the same uh, ease of just sliding into something else some, somewhere uh, as easily as it used to be. Uh, but no, people are certainly people are leaving, uh, and we don't want folks who would like to live here to be forced to leave because of those costs. You know, I think that's a very real issue. Uh, but we also have people coming, and I, I'm actually have to follow up with the Chamber of Commerce. I saw in one of their emails something indicating that 2122. They said there's been a lot of talk about people moving here, but they gave a statistic that said literally 91 people moved here. I had heard more like six or seven thousand people. So I now need to find out which number is right or where their information is from. And that's something that um, is is very curious to me because overall, I'm hearing a lot of people are moving here. Uh, so I think some are leaving, some are moving here. A lot are buying those second homes. The other thing about housing that's a real crunch isn't just that people are moving uh, to, to or from. There's a lot of long-term rental properties that are now short-term rental properties. And that really changes the equation because uh, folks that are working class and we're renting an apartment year round and, you know, not cheap, but, you know, $1,200 a a month or Mm -hmm. whatever it was, uh, those families who own those properties or whoever it is can rent them for, you know, $400 a weekend and a hundred bucks a night midweek. And they're making two or three times the money. And now that's not a property for working people to live in. Well, so there's a lot of different factors. So do you take to go to the, what you, you brought up for a minute though, was the permitting process, the permitting system, do you agree or disagree with the governor and others? Um, for example, the League of Cities and Towns is big on this, that there needs to be changes to the system that it makes it too expensive for people to develop homes, to build homes. And, of course, that may, the ex- sure, expense that, that, that they incur the drives up the cost. Do you think that is an additional problem or, or not? Well, I think it's a bit of an additional problem, but there also was a bill passed last year. And as you know, uh, these things take time to have an effect. But there was a, a massive housing bill passed last year to change, including some of those permitting issues. Uh, the state m- removed local control in some respects to some people's chagrin with respect to uh, zoning, saying you can only have a single family home. It literally said, if you zone for one, you can have two. You know, you can have accessory apartment. You can make it a duplex. You can you can expand uh, without having to jump through as many hoops. Um, if they've got uh, water and sewer, uh, municipal water and sewer, you can actually go to four units uh, on that property. So there, there uh, were some serious changes to remove some of those hurdles, not as much on sort of the bigger developments necessarily. Right, there, there were, but of course, as you know, the League and others were not happy. They felt like... They wanted the lo- more. They felt that's true. That they felt that the local control was taken away. That's right, that's with, why I mentioned it. Without getting enough on the other side. Yeah, no, that's and that's the political trade back and forth. I'm not saying I we all agree, but there was, um, and it's fair, that's a different opinion. I, I, I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering if uh, I just heard him talk about uh, how uh, the housing has gone from long-term to short-term. Do you think it has to do with the laws that are in place in Vermont that make it incredibly difficult to be a long-term landlord? And maybe after COVID, they saw how they wouldn't have the ability to evict people and lost a lot of power and lost a lot of money during that time. That maybe that might be the reason that most of these people decided to do short-term rentals over doing the long-term rentals. I'll listen off air. Good question. No, I think that's a great question. I do think that's a factor. I think sometimes what we often do, all of us jump to conclusions pretty fast. They, this is the reason everything changed. You know, the, the rules around landlords and uh, tenants have existed in many places for quite a long time. I do think they were exacerbated during COVID. At the same time, there also was uh, funding to pay for those folks' rent. So if landlords worked with their tenants who were struggling, they actually could have gotten all that money because well, all they had to do was sign off on some papers that were going to go to get that money. So 
I don't think it had to be that problem. Some landlords were more cooperative with their tenants than others to make sure they could get those resources well, here's, that were helping the tenants pay their rent. I will tell you there's a... But you're also a, right. Yeah. I do think there's a, a, that con- contributes. So I don't want to dismiss your issue as well. I think that's partly true. One of the things that I, I don't know if a, a lot of landlords are experiencing it, um, people I know are experiencing it, worked really closely with the with the tenants and the state through COVID. That was great. Then it ended. They ratcheted down. You know, Now you got to pay 30%. Um, there's a group, uh, I'd say 20% of those tenants just stopped paying. Mm-hmm. And the process takes so long that they're, we're finally getting to the situation where, so they, they've known this. They said, well, I'm, it'll be 18 months. I'm not going to pay you. And good luck. I'll see you in court. And I've got to be honest with you. She predicted 18 months. This one particular person I know, almost to the day. And so, and that is occupying a large number of apartments right now. As they move out, you know, then they're going to become homeless. The whole thing is a a giant circle. I get it. But so I think it was exacerbated. What I find interesting, I want to go back. (laughs) Exacerbated. Thank you. And what I want to go back really quick is here's a woman that I. teacher, but I play one on the radio. Thank you. I've known this woman a very long time. She's a very, very nice, very sweet woman. uh, And will tell you that she's well off. I don't even. Anyway. She came to me and said there are 54 billionaires in Addison County. No. I, I don't believe I didn't it. think that was the case. I don't believe it. No. I didn't I think that there is. There, you know, there, my spouse net is worth, looking on not Zillow income, all the time. Not, not well, income, net worth, net worth. Maybe. But, you know, there's there's a, a property on the lake in Ferrisburg. It was $26 million bucks. It was the highest one on Zillow that my wife has seen. Yeah. We're not looking to buy those. We just do that sort of well, what's out there and the, thing. The, particularly um, in the hills, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, up in Stowe and, and Ludlow, up above where it's Ripton, flooded. So Lincoln. I, I can believe that there's some very wealthy people people um but i bet they're actually you know the five month 28 day residents I, oh yeah they're not here. how many I'm, of them are the yeah. are permanent residents but to me those second homes those those are the ones who if they had to pay three or five thousand more in taxes they'd pay it right. they're not even going to notice i mean if i, Dave, I, I want to ask you another question sure. uh, housing um which is do you support i think you do but no cause eviction um that's one that people have uh, Some people ju- have a problem cause with eviction. just cause eviction. Right. Um, I have supported that, yes. And uh, there certainly are landlords and others that have a problem with that. Sure. Um, that think that, for one thing, that it makes it harder to get a bad tenant out of a neighborhood where neighbors are having a problem with a tenant. I think that's been shown to be a problem. Uh, some have suggested that that's been the problem with what uh, people in Burlington, the housing authority, had to deal with with the high rise on St. Paul Street where there's incredible problems with drug abuse and hmm. the people there are complaining about all these problems sure. and some are suggesting that run it there that that's what they're that's what they're dealing with it's because of the the same issue with just cause or you know just cause evictions right what do you what's your what do you say on that well on a lot of that stuff it's about documentation right you're running a business let's remember if you're a landlord you're essentially making an investment in a property you're expecting a rate of return you're running a business whether you run a uh, restaurant or other such things. It happens to be a capital-intensive business. It's also one that folks can only go into if you've got the capital to do it. So you're going into it uh, already from a position uh, where you're better off than a lot of others. You have to document. If you document that your tenant is damaging your property, causing you cost of money and so forth, uh, or causing problems, uh, if you've documented, then there's a process to go through. The point of just cause eviction is to say, you can't just turn around suddenly and go, oh, your rent was 1200 Market will now run, uh, carry $2,100. Uh, I'm going to go to 2100 and you know basically kick you out by, by increasing the rent at a rate that is just astronomical. We just talked about affordable housing. You know, if you were making it 1200 one year, it's not like you suddenly have to go to 2100 to make money the next year. Right. So uh, it's a combination, and, and maybe it's too blunt a tool. Uh, and I know there's differing opinions out there. Just to be clear and transparent, I have two rental properties in Burlington. I was fortunate in 1994. My mom helped me with $12,000 down payment on the duplex I was living in with my college buddies and uh, co-signed the loan. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. But I'm very... It's the Morning Drive on FM 96.3 and AM 620. News Talk WVMT.
Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here taking you to 9 o'clock, and we're continuing our discussion now with the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Vermont, Dave Zuckerman. And Dave, of course, we've talked about it on the show, that today is the 100th anniversary of uh, our own Calvin Coolidge uh, becoming President of the United States, where he, after his father swore him in, he promptly went back to bed. And they're having ceremonies. They had one in Plymouth Notch this morning. There's going to be another one this afternoon, one Saturday. But I know you have a, a story on that. I do. I was actually down there last night. They had a big uh, sort of gala dinner event. Um, about 250 folks were there. I was there. Uh, and I'm. Uh, this is tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but I'm going to take credit for Calvin Coolidge having become president. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. Or at least my lineage. Uh, I take credit in my lineage. So uh, I sat down at a table at the event next to a, a family, um, Jenny, oh shoot, I'm going to forget her name right now, right on the air. Um, and we were discussing uh, the evening, and she is a great-granddaughter of Calvin Coolidge. And I said, well, that's very interesting, because what is one of the events that made Calvin Coolidge uh, famous pre-election? He was governor of Massachusetts. Oh, the strike? When he was governor of Massachusetts. Lee strike? The strike. Now little connection here. Uh, oddly enough, the governor of Massachusetts appoints the police commissioner of the city of Boston back in the day. That's a <laughs> municipal position, you'd think, but right. in that day, and I don't know if it was because Boston was Democrat, the state was Republican, and, and sort of you did that power thing like it's happening in Texas sometimes right now. Uh, but in any case, the police commissioner was a guy named Edwin Upton Curtis. Edwin Upton Curtis would not recognize the union, uh, and that's why they were going on strike, and then there was violence. Calvin Coolidge called in the guard. Very famous uh, union event in, in uh, labor history. Edwin Upton Curtis is my great-grandfather. Oh, so smack! I was sitting next to the great-granddaughter of Calvin Coolidge as the great-grandson of Edwin Upton Curtis, who would not recognize the strike, which led to all the media, Calvin bringing in the guard, and uh, huge media for him, and he was then picked. So because as- of your... Wow. The, wow. The, the police strike gave the... A lot of notoriety to Calvin Correct. Coolidge, a national, he got a national attention. National attention. He broke the union. Uh, it was a big labor setback for about 20 years. And then uh, he gets nominated. And he, he gets, gets put chosen on. to be the vice president who becomes president when Harding dies. There you go. All right. So, I get the connection. Wow. Yeah. And the police commissioner, the conservative police he commissioner. He was a Republican uh, mayor of Boston union in 1894. Busting. So the reason I want to scare everybody with this is two factors. <laughs> One is... All the conservatives listening, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren are all going to be left-wing whack jobs like me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, uh, just, you know, if you're afraid for the future, you just should be more scared now. That's hysterical. <laughs> I am. I, well, I, I just, and, and, and to be just arbitrarily, you just happen to be sitting next to Calvin Coolidge's great-granddaughter. Yeah. I think that is, the, yeah. that, it's amazing. Yeah, Jim that was Douglas, just uh, last night. He didn't know. That was last night. And he didn't, Jim didn't know. He didn't know. I told him this story. It was, it was actually a lot of fun. That's that a, a good story. It's a great story. It was, I told the story as the toast that I gave uh, for the evening. That's a good story. Uh, because there was a lot that. of conversation about Calvin and, and in Vermont, people working across the aisle and working with other people. So I said, well, here you go. Yeah. Governor Douglas in, invited me, and uh, he vetoed my bill 2006. You were there, <laughs> uh, Kurt, the uh, GMO one? liability bill. For strict oh, liability, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2006. Let's go to the phones. Yeah. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. Hi, good morning. I'd like to have a respectful conversation with Lieutenant Governor <laughs> about guns, if I could. Sure. I, I'm a, I'm a home, homeowner. I, didn't, I don't hunt. but I didn't buy guns to kill people, but rather protect myself and my sure. family. And there's always a debate about assault rifles, and I'm just curious what your definition of assault rifle is. I mean, my definition of it is, is, is it should be a fully automatic rifle, and most importantly, it should have a, a bayonet lug on the barrel. I mean, how else are you going to assault somebody if you with just a rifle without a bayonet lug? I mean, an assault rifle is an assault rifle like the military uses. And most of these AR-15 platforms don't have bayonet lugs on them, so I don't really think they're assault rifles. Um, magazines versus clips. Um, I mean, the, any spring-loaded device such as goes into a pistol is a magazine. A clip is a belt-fed um, machine gun, such as you see in the movies. Magazines don't put a bullet in the chamber, so when you hear these lawsuits going on today about a, a gun not having a safety, that is the safety. You load a magazine into a pistol, and, and a bullet does not go into the chamber. Respectable gun owners don't rack or, or slingshot a bullet into the chamber until they need it. 
revolvers have safeties on them, and that's because there is a bullet ready to go into the chamber. Um, I, I think this whole thing is just there's lack of information about what's out there. I mean, when the Second Amendment was written, everyone had the same weapons, so really, theoretically, why can't I have the same weapons the government has now? I mean, that, that argument that uh, doesn't hold any, any truth to me. I mean, uh, we're, when I own an AR-15 or an Armalite Rifle 15 or an M6 Carbine, it's called an assault rifle, but if you go on the websites, every government official agency that carries weapons, they call them PDW. So the same weapons we carry, the AR-15 platforms, but they call them PDWs, which are personal defense weapons. So there's a, uh, I think there's a double standard here, and I just didn't know what your so, definition is. So can you rifle. crystallize the question? Well, the question for me was how do I define an assault rifle is where I started, yes. I think. Um, well, I, I, I go with pepper over salt, but no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am not an expert. I will say that right now. Uh, I've also not um, said we have to certainly take anyone's weapons away either. Um, but I do think if we're going back to sort of the Constitution and what weapons people had back in the day and everybody had the same weapon, one of the reasons this whole provision is in the Constitution was because people had to form a militia to overthrow the monarchistic uh, rule that we had. Right? We were, we were claiming independence from the monarchy of England and taxation without representation. One of the things we established was the ability to create change not through violence and uprising, but through the ballot box. So we have to put all of these things in context. We all have that power to change who is in office uh, as, a, as a collective process of majority rule. That didn't exist, and we don't, we don't even know what that's like. People around the world do, but people here do not know what it's like to not be able to express that opinion, organize, and push for change through the ballot box. So I just want to put everything into context, because I also, and obviously the courts ruled, that uh, the Second Amendment, for some reason, doesn't include the in order to form a militia part, which is in the Constitution. So that's, since you gave a bit of a, a preamble or a postamble to your question, I just wanted to offer that up, and I'm sure I'll get some really happy responses to that. Do you, but, um, are you... And, but I don't know, let me just answer that. I don't have an absolute answer on my knowledge of what an assault rifle is, because I'm not an expert. I have... Uh, a pellet gun for shooting rats, just so you know, folks, I do kill animals on the farm, um, shooting rats in the barn, uh, and it's got the safety, because once you put the pellet in and you pump it up, it's ready to go if you pull the trigger. Uh, but obviously, that's a very different situation than, than what you're talking about. Just in regard to guns and the gun bill that was passed last year, uh, there were a lot of legislators, some legislators, I should say, that stood up and said, this is not going to hold up in court, it's not constitutional, it's being challenged now. Uh, do you... How real do you think the constitutional is with the bill that was passed last year? Well, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but clearly this um, court, if it goes up to the Supreme Court level, uh, plus Vermont's constitution is actually a stronger uh, gun rights constitution than, than even the federal level. I, I think that's accurate. All you gun folks can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure folks have told me that over and over again. But if it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, I think it'll be tough. Uh, there's no doubt with this court and how it interprets the constitution, um, which is a pretty... Some would argue accurate, others would argue, and I would argue, radical change from how it has been being interpreted for the last, you know, 50 years in general. Um, may well throw it out. We will find out. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on The Morning Drive. Good morning, David. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you. I want to go back to housing okay. <clears throat> they were talking, that you were talking about before. Do you know how many subsidized housing is in Chittenden County? Don't get me wrong, there's people that really need this. And the, second, the second question is, and there is a pathway for people that are in subsidized housing that could get a job so that they could pay affordable housing and then own their own properties. I'll listen. Thank you. Sure. Uh, well, there's a couple things to that. One is many, many people who are in subsidized housing also have jobs. Uh, so I just want to make sure that isn't... Um, a misnomer out there that if you're in subsidized housing, it's because you have no job. I think you haven't most a job. Do. Yeah, I would say the vast majority do have jobs. The reality is that a lot of jobs out there now, now wages have gone up. I mean, I, I shrunk my farm this year because I couldn't find enough help at the kinds of wages that we could afford to pay. I upped a lot of my options for people 
And uh, I went from seventeen fifty to twenty bucks an hour. And this guy said, "Well, I'm making bagels for twenty two dollars an hour." I said, "Then make bagels." You know, right. I, I can't, I can't go up five bucks an hour in one year. And just to remind folks, when I was advocating for raising the minimum wage, I said it then. <clears throat> you have to do it in steps. So I get it as a business owner. I couldn't go more than five bucks an hour increase. Um, but even at you know sixteen or twenty dollars or twenty two dollars an hour, that guy earlier was saying he's got two hundred fifty thousand dollars to buy is what he could buy. You know, that's not, it doesn't even exist in Chittenden County. You know, you're probably talking at least 350 or 375 and easily into the four, five, six hundred thousand dollars in a lot of parts of Chittenden County. You're not going to buy that on 22 or even 25 bucks an hour. So that the issue of people not being able to buy a house, as the gentleman just said, you know, go out and get a job and then you can go buy a house. There's just not enough of those higher paying jobs to meet the cost of housing. Yeah, and I do think that a lot of people in subsidized housing are using it as a stepping stone. They're working. They're Many hardworking of them are trying, people. Yeah, you know, uh, the other piece that was on the radio, your news earlier was uh, the number of people that can't afford a four hundred dollar bill uh, has increased by a couple percentage. It was on your national news piece. Yeah. I don't. They didn't give what that percentage was, but there's a lot of folks out there. If you can't pay a four hundred dollar bill, you're not saving up the thirty thousand dollars you need for a down payment. Right. I'll tell you that. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes, good morning. I'm gonna, I have a serious question related to guns and then a fun question related to Calvin Coolidge. I'll start with the serious one. All right. At the same time, the calamitous progressive Biden administration announces that he's, that they're going to withhold funding from schools that have shooting and archery programs. The same time that's announced, a study comes out from a university in the, in the Midwest that says, Kids introduced to guns and gun safety at an early age were 30% less likely to play with a gun that they found because they understood what guns were and how dangerous they could be. Do you support the Biden administration in withholding funding to schools um, that have shooting and archery programs? And then the fun question, considering your lineage to Cal Coolidge, what happened to small government and fiscal responsibility? <laughs> Fair enough. A uh, couple things. I- I'm all for fiscal responsibility. Uh, there's a, those two words get clumped together as if they automatically stick together. Um, but I do think we need to use our dollars efficiently. It's one of the reasons I approached Phil Scott back in 2017 and said, let's look at human services. Let's look at education. They're dealing with a lot of the same families. Uh, and in some schools and some towns, uh, there's a really good symmetry there. And in other places, it's terrible. So let's look at how to more efficiently provide those services instead of duplicating them so that we can actually use those dollars more effectively. So fiscal responsibility to me is about effective, efficient use of dollars. And and as an old many, many generation, as we've now talked about, uh, New England frugal person, uh, <laughs> I'm all for that. Uh, the small government conversation is a different one. That's about a philosophy of whether or not we can collectively uh, do things better than some aspects of the private sector. We spend $2 to 1 over all those Western European uh, countries with respect to health care, and many of them have much better uh, overall health outcomes than we do here. Uh, so there's discussions about what systems uh, for programs that are, or things that we all use maybe should be uh, collectively done so it's actually more efficient, not less efficient. But so that's the... That's the uh, answer on that on that one as far as the shooting and archery look i i did a, a camp when i was a kid um that we had archery and we had it was bb guns at that age uh and i no i i had not heard about that policy i don't actually happen to agree with that policy uh i do think um folks experiencing things when they're younger and this even goes to growing up on farms and and killing animals and meat right we are as we remove ourselves from these experiences as kids we then don't have the knowledge and experience as adults to take the full range of the issue into consideration. Uh, I remember when we first started raising chickens, my daughter was on my hip, probably two years old, the first time we had chickens. And we, at that time, we had someone else processing the chickens. And I said, Addie, I'm going to have you on my hip. You can. We're going to go take a look because she was interested. I said, if it's something you don't want to look at, you just turn your head away, put it into my shoulder, and I'll walk away. Mm-hmm. But you, this is where your chicken comes from. Yeah. And she watched. So you would you disagree if that <clears throat> is accurate about the Biden policy on regard to hold, withholding funds for schools? Though, yeah, I don't, I I don't agree with that. I we mean, got, I, we got some more calls coming in. I don't but, know the details, but on we, first blush, we I, got more I calls coming in. But Dave, uh, just real quick, do you 
do you want to see Biden be the nominee for the Democratic Party next year? Well, we've talked about voting systems for a long time. I think if we had a range of different voting systems, we would have a lot more choices than it looks like we're going to get. I, I'm not happy about what likely are the two choices we're going to have. So that sounds like you you yourself would prefer a different choice. I, I, not for the fact that uh, I might be in a different position than a lot of listeners here in terms of, do I think he's done a terrible job, or I think the gentleman might have said he's a, you know the most progressive or left-wing president, et cetera. I wouldn't quite say that, but... Um, but I, I also am just concerned uh, as we watch what's going on with Mitch McConnell and Diane Feinstein and so many others. It's, you know, we do not know what's going to happen over four years. And it's true, frankly, for both of them. Um, and it's, uh, it's something, you know, obviously it's voters' choice. It's candidates' choice. But in part, the candidates define the choice because they've already got such political clout, resource, access, and so forth. And that's one of the reasons I have forever supported changing the voting system, changing financing, because you would start to see people being able to express those those wishes for more choices, but we don't have them. And I think that's true on the right right now, and I think that's true on the left. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes. When uh, all of you gentlemen, myself, and most of your listeners grew up and went to school, we, we did not have access to pornography in the schools. Because for the most part, we had responsible adults running the schools who understood that pornography is harmful to children. But now we have a lot of really bad, creepy people who have flooded our schools with books that are under the guise of uh, LGBTQ flag are blatant pornography. I would not be able to read a lot of the content of these books on your airwaves here. It is a fact that making access, pornography accessible to children is a felony. And yet the lieutenant governor here is on a little tour to go around and read pornography to our children. This is disgusting, Mr. Lieutenant Governor. All right, let's hear from the Lieutenant Governor. Dave, we know you are doing this book tour. Yep. The band uh, book tour. What, what are you, give us a sample of something that you are reading to kids, that are, books that are banned. And is this book banning stuff, is it about age-appropriate books? So a couple things there. Uh, I'm not sure if the gentleman has participated in any of these conversations. I welcome folks with all persuasions of thought to come to them. We have really good conversations Uh, I don't think he's actually heard me read the books or seen the books I've read because he just made an allegation that's blatantly, patently false. Uh, I have read And Tango Makes Three. Uh, That is a book that is about a real story in the New York Zoo of two male penguins that were best buds and they built a nest and they couldn't raise an egg. Uh, And one of the... um, Zookeepers, but they, they literally, they got a rock and put it in. They, they tried to do what the other couples were doing. Uh, and the zookeeper where uh, another couple had two, another penguin couple had two eggs and had historically not been able to raise them both, took one and put it in their nest. They raised it. They fed it. They did all the things that two, uh, the male and female penguins did, uh, taught it how to swim, taught it how to hunt, etc. cetera. Uh, so if that's pornography, then you have a different definition of pornography than I do. Um, I've also read from uh, Beloved, which is a book by Toni Morrison, uh, and it's an incredibly uh, challenging and emotional, powerful book about uh, life growing up on a slave plantation in the South, a woman escaping, uh, but actually having to um, kill one of her daughters uh, before she escaped because she thought death was a better outcome for that kid than growing up on a plantation. Uh, And, you know, these are, that book is about, is a, it's it's fictional, but it's it's a a reflection on how horrific that life was for people, and that's history, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that uh, when you look at the books that are being banned, uh, many of them are about just simply rewriting or erasing history. Uh, so some are about um, uh, sexual development and or orientation. There's a lot of coming of age books that are banned. Are there any books that you think that that you read about that have been banned that you think are could be age inappropriate. Are there, are there any books that you think you can understand people saying, that's not appropriate for my kid to be... I, I can at. understand that. And then I also can say, well, then their kid doesn't have to read the book. Right? These are not books typically that are assigned in a class. Like, we're, here's 20 copies. Everybody take home a copy and read it. 
the books that are being banned are books that are in the school library that uh, typically the librarian, who is actually someone who helps everybody find the books that are appropriate for them. Uh, and so if you have a librarian that is doing something inappropriate, then you can certainly go ask them about it and or, <clears throat> excuse me, say, you know, I don't want my kid to read this. But you also have to recognize that all of this, every single piece of it, is online now. When we grew up, we didn't have all the online stuff. So if you're worried about that, have you given your kid a phone? Yeah. Have you, um, you know, figured out how to stop them from accessing all these things online? Because frankly, they're getting way more online than they were ever getting in their schools. And on top of that, what I find amazing is if you talk to bookstore owners, which is not the public libraries where these are getting banned, sales of these books are going through the roof. The folks that want to ban these books are actually generating more exposure and more interest in these books than they ever would have had if people had just been quiet. Because they're up on a shelf, they're not found. Uh, typically, some of the ones that this gentleman, I think, is considering pornography is probably something that towards high school or uh, as kids who are struggling with depression and suicide because they're not, they don't see reflections of themselves in books if they're gay or lesbian or bi or trans or any number of where you are on the spectrum. And those librarians help them understand that they are who they are and they should embrace who they are and not potentially kill themselves because of who they are. All right, Dave, we are out of time. Thanks for being on The Morning Drive. Just real quick, um, with your housing bill, the one that you talked about on the show a little while back, um, you're still working on that. Oh, do you, God, do you, I've got a lot of research to do to get numbers. And then so you'll be working with some legislators to potentially put that out there. As I think there are some legislators. I don't want to take all the, all the credit. There are others who are also working on and looking at this as well. For All sure. right, Kurt and Anthony on FM 96.3 and AM 620, WVMT. We are back on the morning drive. Kurt and Anthony here, and the lieutenant governor has stayed over for a couple more <laughs> minutes here because yeah. he had a little bit more he wants to say about the uh, banned book issue. And uh, one more thing for a minute or two after right. that. Well, earlier you had a caller uh, call in about the birds in Richmond. And... Um, I, I know those folks. Uh, they are good farmers. Uh, I, I think it's it's always harder and more complicated than it seems. Typically, and, and this person is from Richmond when she called in, she said that river, those spaces flood all the time. I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, the floods used to be in the spring and deep in the fall. You could predict What's them. happened with, uh, you know, from snow melt and heavy rain or something, mm-hmm. you know, sort of April, May. Um What's happened with Irene and now this flood is we're getting these massive floods in the middle of summer. I don't believe that was the norm for this person growing up. I believe what it was in 1972 or 73 there was a year. But it was not this kind of frequency uh, in the summer and at this scale. So things are different. And a lot of farmers who are in floodplains right now are going, hmm. And a lot of people who have housing that are near rivers are going, hmm, what's changing? How extreme are these becoming do we stay? This is a serious question. It's being talked about all over the state. Uh, but in terms of moving them, even with warning, I can just tell you on that scale, moving that many birds uh, out of that area uh, would have taken a lot of people and a lot of time. And there were certainly warnings that there were going to be big rains, but no one predicted. I mean, Ludlow, they predicted four or five inches. They got nine inches. Yeah. So when that happens, that does catch people off guard. And uh, you also need a place to take them. You need facilities to put them in. Those big Quonsets in that field, you can't just drive those up the road. You can pull them across the field, well, you but there's no like that. entryway and exitway for something that's 30 feet so wide. So what's the issue then? And I want to ask this because we have the... But it's a horrible law. I, have, I agree with the person. Like It's tragedy. We, no have the, we have the commissioner of ag coming on, Anson Tebbets, at 8.30. And uh, what's the question for him then? I mean, as she said, ask him this question. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think her question is about, uh, you know, she was phrasing it under the animal cruelty, right? I mean, animals drowning is, is horrible. There's no doubt. But animal cruelty is typically more like if you are perpetually treating an animal poorly. We see these horses that are sometimes going to say the lead you know, penned up, penned up in a in a barn and, and not fed well. And you see these emaciated animals. That's animal cruelty more than um, sort of a, a, a disaster situation where, you know, Trust me, you know, they also were probably scrambling and maybe did save some of them, but it's a phenomenally huge task. And unless you have like what happened in the intervale where you had dozens, if not hundreds of people go down harvesting those foods before that river was coming, you know, that's uh, that's a different scenario. And also even handling animals is more complicated than topping carrots. 
And uh, the other piece about the intervale, I was down there. We, we flooded it 12, 14, 16 feet. This was 22 feet in the intervale. So they didn't expect the water level to get that high. Um, and so when you look at the Richmond area, if it had been a 12-foot or a 14-foot river, they wouldn't have flooded. So that's that answer. The other one on the banned books I just really briefly wanted to get into that I want everybody to remember is who's deciding what books are banned? Because it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. Mm. If the crazy lefties like me take over and say, guess what? No books about guns or war in schools because guns create violence. We see violence on TV all the day, all the time by guns. Let's make there be no exposure to guns and war in schools because that's traumatic for kids. I think a lot of people say, "What is but, that? Is that your position?" I want to clarify it because that is not will, my okay, position. You said crazy lefties like me, and then right. then they're going to flip and say, "I want to be I clear." The that is not. Yeah, no, that is yeah. not my position. But just remember when you when you start talking about banning books, right? Uh, you have to remember that who's in power that's going to make that decision, and is it sooner or later your books, your exactly. philosophy, your thought, your life that's going to be erased from history? I'm not sure people want to go down that path. I hear you on that. It's a, it's a different, but a little bit like this in regard to um, school mascots. That that issue, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and the names that they use, because we've read articles now where there are people that are involved in this process who say, uh, going forward, we don't want to have uh, patriots used as school mascots, mm-hmm. used as the school name. Uh, Minutemen and all those things. So, in a little bit of a way, it's different, but. It's, same right, thing where right. people are saying we don't for us we don't want you using anything that we think could be connected to violence in any way like the the Minutemen were in the Revolutionary War right Patriots and were you know it, to me it, which is just kind of crazy right uh, and I think in some some areas we're we're going too far and uh, they're important conversations to have but anything that's absolute like that is do you want do you want to take one more call before sure you go? we'll take one more but then I am going to run yeah. All right, um, let's go to the phone. I can't take it. Good morning. <laughs> You're live on the morning drive. Yes, good morning. Um, I, I am glad that you were uh, against banned books. Uh, I think that there, there's no books that people should be uh, afraid of. And if uh, people are uh, you know, wanting to put them off to the side, then obviously there's something wrong with their argument. Uh, now, on that, I was wondering, in the local public uh, high school and the local libraries, which section should Mein Kampf, the translated version, be in? Should it be in art history or sociology? Or uh, what, 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 which section do you think Mein Kampf should be in? I mean, you wouldn't want to yeah. ban that book, correct? No, I don't want to ban that book. Uh, but it probably should either be in the history section uh, or, as you said, art history, although I think it would be more history than art history. Um, but... Uh, you know, it could be if we have a section on sort of uh, either war or or dictatorship, it could be in that section. I mean, there's there's a number of places it could be. Yeah. Sure. No, I don't want to ban that book. I'm, it's an abhorrent, you know, of philosophy course, to me, but learn. I don't want to ban the book. This, this is what, what is frustrating from either side. You learn from those, history. Those who don't know history are doomed, doomed to, repeat to repeat it. Exactly. All right. With exactly. that, note, we, with thank that. you, everybody. I appreciate it. it. Dave, thanks for staying over for a few thank extra you. minutes. Absolutely. And, uh, have a great day. We'll see you next thanks time. Thanks for coming in, and thanks for the melon that, that, and the sweet corn. Oh, my God. I'm very happy. Dave, we'll right. see you in September.